Welcome to Post Doom, Regenerative Conversations, Exploring Overshoot Grief, Grounding in Gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation, recorded in September of 2019, I speak with Matthew Slater. Matthew has been Jem Bendel's executive assistant for quite some time, but he's, he's a force to be reckoned with in his own right. He calls himself a community currency engineer, and he and Jem actually co-created an online course, and he's written some amazing things. He has a YouTube channel. In fact, his website, mattslat.net. I encourage you to check out his writings, his, his, uh, his talks. Uh, the thing that grabbed my attention when I first began corresponding with him was something that he wrote called The Climate Crisis, and it's amazing. He's, he's, uh, he's wonderful. My life started uh, with a theology degree and then several years of being lost and reading, and uh, then I learned some software to learn to program. And eventually I found myself working in the nonprofit world for a humanitarian organization. That's but great. I, I, didn't like the, uh, I didn't like being told what to do. Uh, so I found myself a niche in community currencies. And for most of the last 10 years, I've been building open source community currency software and traveling around networking with all of those people. And it was after the financial crisis of 2008, and I really started looking at the alternative media. I made a conscious effort to switch over, and I got very, very alarmed about the fragility of civilization and very unconvinced by the bailout mechanisms. And for a few years after that, I was waiting for a collapse to happen tomorrow. Right. Um, so in some ways, I'm already inured to the idea of collapse, but uh, from a financial perspective. And so um, even uh, uh, as early as the 1990s, when I was in my late 20s, I'm now 47, 8, um, it seemed to me that the existence of poverty in the world made normal life impossible. I didn't feel that I could live a normal life with all of those uh, other poor people um, living in this unacceptable way and my community being in an extractive relationship with their community. Mm. So it seemed to me imperative, um, even before my life could begin, to work on that. Um, and then climate change in, in the first decade of this century, it seemed to override that. Um, not only because of the, the poverty issue, but also because there was an existential issue on top of poverty. And then there's also people saying, yes, but we need to solve them both with the same thing, uh, like the Millennium Development Goals and global justice issues. So for a while I stopped flying. Um, but then when I became a, a nomad and started working on community currencies, uh, I had to travel um, and also to use my time efficiently. So I'm, I'm not apologizing for that flying. Yeah, yeah. Well, say a little bit more about your community currencies work and, and how you did that nomadically. Well, it began in the Let's movement. 
So I lived in Cambridge for several years and I joined the Cambridge Let's. And having recently learned to program, I, I saw that everything that they were doing on paper that was such a lot of work would be much better done on a website. So I started working on some open source software for that. And as I went along, I started to realize um, by reading around that this idea that you can just not use money for certain transactions and mark it up on a ledger was really uh, fundamental to the question of what money is. And it posed a philosophical and uh, theoretical challenge to the nature of money. And as I read more and more, I realized that this has been a, a philosophical debate running through history. Um, and also that my language coming from the Let's community was a very uh, bottom-up practical language, uh, even if I was saying the same things as uh, economists, which are ignored in the mainstream now. And so I started sewing all of these things together and in about 2015, I worked with Professor Jem Bendel, the author of the Deep Adaptation paper, on making a MOOC, Massive, open, uh, massive Online Open course, on the subject of money. And so, uh, well, it wasn't a massive MOOC platform. We've got several hundred people to, to do the MOOC and have received a lot of appreciation for it. Um, so in, in that MOOC, we go into a lot of detail about what is the nature of money, uh, what do we learn about money from its various different examples in history? We look at the sociology and the economics of money and how unjust it is and how it uh, tends to reinforce existing political power. And then in the final lesson, we look at alternatives. So I've relished that uh, study of money uh, and understanding the world from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I... Um... I was first introduced way back in, I think it was 1988 by a parishioner. I was pastoring my first church in Western Massachusetts. And I had one of my parishioners gave me uh, uh, an article or an essay by, I believe it was Margaret Kennedy, inflation and interest-free money or something like that. And it was yeah. my first introduction to, oh my gosh, these, these monetary systems that we have are inherently eco-destructive. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how you connected with Gemin, and now you're functioning also as his executive assistant, as I understand? Well, uh, I was the one that got Gem into money in the first place. That's great. Back in about 2012. And he stayed on it for some years before finding something more important. Uh, and then I've jumped across and uh, been helping him with a lot of administrative stuff. Also a bit of thinking for deep that's adaptation. Great. That's great. Well, you know, when I, as I recall, uh, why I was led to invite you to this series is I had, I had originally invited Jim um, mm -hmm. and uh, you responded and said, you know, he's, he's uh, pretty busy right now and really doesn't want to be put up on a pedestal. Um, and, uh, you know, but I've written some stuff along these lines, uh, here, check this out. And I read it. I was like, wow, yeah, that's great. I would love to inter interview you and be in conversation. Uh, and then maybe two weeks later, uh, Jim got back to me and he said, you know, I actually been thinking I would like to be part of this series. And I said, well, good. Well, I still want Matthew also. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then you just sent the piece yesterday, um, you know, uh, how soon do we have, or, you know, how much time do we have or something like that, which built on the previous. So just say a little bit about both those, uh, those posts of yours, um, uh, before I even go any further. Ah, well, the first post was expressing a sense of panic 
even though I said before, you know, I've been thinking about collapse since 2008. Uh, even when deep adaptation came along and Jem said, oh, we've got five to ten years. Um, it was a few weeks ago that uh, some more climate news came out. And it seems that uh, the multi-bread basket failure, we could see the beginnings of it now uh, with the changes in the weather. Um, and so that was what gave me a, a fresh cause for uh, concern. So that was my first blog post. And then the one after that, uh, I tried to follow it up with something that sounded a little less alarmed. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I wanted to answer a concrete question to the best of my ability. And the, the question everybody's asking is, as far as I can see, or the question I would be asking, and I'm asking, is how long have we got? How long have I got to put my affairs in order before um, social disintegration or whatever terrible things we think might happen in the future are going to make it much harder? Uh, in my case, uh, it might be how long have I got to move to the countryside and get myself self-sufficient in food? Um, maybe that's not what everybody can do, but those options are available to me if I can get myself organized. Um, and considering the, that latest data, even if it's only the, the beginning, even if it's only a one-off, it seems to me that um, uh, food production could be reduced quite rapidly, quite quickly. Um, it's time to get moving. I've only been tracking this the last year myself. I've been watching Paul Beckwith's uh, videos and reading some other people. And um, in fact, invited Peter Wadhams to also be part of this series. And a lot of people don't know that the, the Arctic really is the cooler, the, the refrigerator of the planet. And uh, as the ice shrinks and more and more of that sun and heat gets directly absorbed by the blue oceans rather than reflected, um, that causes the jet stream to get wavier. The, the center of rotation goes over Greenland rather than the North Pole. Um, and it can radically and fairly rapidly impact agricultural regions because some places become much wetter, some much drier, some much hotter, some much colder. And even those can flip on a two or three or four year basis. And a lot of people don't know that it only takes of the major of the five major food growing regions in the world. Um, Russia, Australia, the United States, Canada, and Europe. And Europe. Uh, it only takes two of them or more in a, in a single year failing where you've got some serious, serious food problems. So that multi-breadbasket failure model of how societal contraction or collapse can uh, proceed more rapidly is something that a lot of people just don't know. And I, I found you referencing that in those two posts that you mentioned uh, quite helpful. Well, it was Jem that referenced it in the deep adaptation paper originally. What alarmed me was that that was starting to happen. Yes. Just one year after the paper was written. Yes. Well, well I think anybody... we have to be careful about making a jump between the food shortages and social collapse. It's a very, um, a, a very commonly made jump. And Roger Hallam being interviewed for Extinction Rebellion on Hard Talk the other day, he was saying that uh, science is proving that there's going to be a social collapse. And a lot of people found that rather hard to stomach, yes. uh, including me, although there's an article out today that uh, says, well, more or less. But still, I'm, I want to know how. 
how does food shortage lead to social collapse? I'm not convinced that it's as simple as that um, because I think that government is very strong and capitalism is very strong. And I don't think those things are going to collapse without a fight. Yes. No, I completely agree. In fact, that's where I found people like Dmitry Orlov and John Michael Greer most useful in helping people move beyond the denial of there's no problem here or perpetual, the myth of perpetual progress and not snapping over to uh, a rather naive understanding of collapse. Um, it's much more nuanced and things unfold in a more stair-step way. Well, you know, this comes back around to how do you language for yourself and sort of how do you think about these times? I'm changing a lot uh, every week on this. At the moment, my thinking is that uh, in view of all the poverty that so concerned me in the 90s, what we're anticipating now is just more of the same. Um, and so my concerns are the same. I'm concerned about needless suffering uh, in large quantities. And climate change just seems to be a driver and an accelerator of those things which my whole professional life I've been seeking to counter or work against or reduce. Um, does that answer your question about post-doom? Yeah, that, that's good enough. Yep. Because um, I thought, I thought when, uh, when it seemed to me that civilization was going to end, I thought that my personal mission was over because my personal mission was to be part of the next thing that would be better than this thing. And it, and there wasn't going to be a next thing anymore. Um, so I was discouraged for some time, but I'm, I'm getting it back now because it seems to me that uh, we're still fighting the same things. So I don't want to use the fighting language too much, but yeah. struggling certainly. Anything that you'd like to share about what it was like growing up and when you began to make the shift to, you talked a little bit about it in terms of understanding poverty and, and made a commitment early on. Um, but, you know, what episodes triggered your greatest fear or anguish or grief? Share a little of your story of coming to grips with uh, these cascading, um, uh, not just problems, but predicaments that we now face. I've been through phases of despair and anger about how difficult it is to, uh, to change the world or to make the world a better place. Um, I've been tempted to give up once or twice, but then if I give up, I wouldn't know who I was anymore. Mm. So for me, um, it's the uh, meaning of life. I made it that as a conscious choice to try and um, reduce suffering. Um, and that hasn't changed really throughout any of this. You certainly sound like you were among the group of those who felt that it was their calling, their mission, their vocation, their avocation to help transform the systems to along more just and compassionate and sustainable lines. Um, so I'm wondering if there's anything else that you want to say about um, that emotional turn. When did you begin to realize, was it recent or quite a long time ago, 
that things weren't getting bigger and bigger and better and better and easier and easier as the myth of progress likes to tell. But in fact, we were looking at a future of scarcity, a future of decline, a future of, of, of challenges that we had not seen because we've been using so much dense concentrated energy and so many material resources that have allowed us this temporary blip as Chris Klugstad calls it of, uh, of, of, of wealth, but that it was never, it could never be permanent because it wasn't grounded in ecological reality. Like how, how did you come to that emotionally? I've always had a, a multidimensional approach to truth and uh, I've understood for a long time that it's very hard to see the world as it is because we are each in our own discourses to use a sociological language. So right from when I was a evangelical Christian at the age of 17 and the news was all around me that oh the revivals coming started it's in South America over there and yet at the same time it kind of wasn't happening either um, and I I've seen how different groups of people get excited or worried about different things. And you, you can't ever get the whole picture in your mind at the same time. So sometimes you can go to a solidarity economy conference and get really optimistic because you can see people starting to join the dots. And other times you read the news about Boris Johnson and Brexit and it's all going to shit. Uh, and it depends what you want to focus on. And there seem to be the, the two forces, if you like, uh, the good and the evil, and they're constantly pushing against each other. Uh, but I don't know where the ground is. I don't know who's winning and who's losing at any time. And I see the whole thing as a, a constant, uh, not an equilibrium, because that would imply that it wasn't moving, but maybe a, a battlefield on many fronts. You know, and some fronts are advancing and some are retreating and fronts are affecting each other. And so you can't really work out what's going on at any one time. So I've I, I, I live with that uncertainty and I assign myself a role. I'm the community currency engineer and I just do the best I can in that role that I've given myself because there was nobody better to give me a better role. What have been some of the tools or practices or exercises or worldviews that you have found helpful uh, in this process? Well, again, with the multidimensional approach to truth, those stories don't convince me. Uh, they're there if I want to use them. So I've got an internal model of uh, the top-down universe and the bottom-up universe. In the bottom-up universe, it's the materialism. Uh, it's the universe's energy. It organizes itself into uh, quarks and atoms and molecules and organic compounds and then societies. And then above that, well, this doesn't quite explain some of all the, the spiritual phenomena that people talk about. So the bottom-up model isn't quite complete. But then there's the top-down model, which is maybe more Eastern philosophy, where the universe is consciousness and it kind of manifests itself in matter in a way that we don't understand. And so um, with this completely opposing story, um, you can make up a lot of reasons to live, uh, but it doesn't really explain very much either. Uh, so I just hold those two intention, uh, but it doesn't give me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, I've struggled with depression, um, not for a long time now, 
but the reason to get out of bed in the morning is the unfolding story. I want to know what happens next. The story of humanity, if not the story of the cosmos, is a cliffhanger, and we're on, we're right on the cliff. <laughs> That's a great image. So I want to stick around to see what happens. That's great. Uh, I'll, as a preacher, I'll, uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll borrow that. I'll steal that because that's a, that's a wonderful visual <laughs> image. Well, you know, speaking of our stories in a multi-dimensional or multi-reality dimensional approach uh, or multi-dimensional approach to reality, uh, I'm curious, many of us have had to restory the past as well as the future uh, in this. Um, have you had any if onlys like like have you at times thought like if only humanity had done this by this time or had not done gone down that path or whatever uh, or do you see things more in terms of things have just been emerging or unfolding uh, as they are and there may or may not be a sense of inevitability but it's if onlys don't help yeah my, the if onlys never crossed my mind uh, I think it was some mental discipline I did on myself maybe a few years ago um, anything that's happened has happened. Yeah. Uh, and you can't say if only because it, the, the world is chaotic. You know, if only Hitler had won uh, World War II, well, who knows? Anything. It's a good yeah. premise for a novel. <laughs> that's uh, great. Even in my own life, I don't do if onlys. Yes. Uh, what has happened seems like the only thing that could have happened. Yeah. Well, whether that's ontologically true or not, it's the most useful way that I know how to live, which is to mm -hmm. trust that I'm doing the best I can and others have done the best they could given what they had to work with. And we are where we are. And so then the question becomes, okay, here's what's real now, what's possible. And so we mm -hmm. live out of that sense of, of, of possibility. Well, another question that I've been asking the various guests in this uh, post-doom conversation series relates to impermanence and death in general, both our own sense of our own impermanence and death, but also the impermanence and death of biological life and that sort of thing. So how, how if at all, has thinking about impermanence and death um, uh, informed you, uh, or is it just not something that you think a whole lot about? I haven't had a lot of benefit from contemplating my own death. And at some point, I just decided to stop doing it. Um, maybe with a more animal consciousness. I'm sure animals don't contemplate their own death and they get along just fine. <laughs> um, one thing I've been thinking a bit about recently is the, the death of the species, the idea that uh, humanity could go extinct. And really that too doesn't move me at all. It seems like a story. It's bad enough when people die in poverty that was inflicted on them by other people. How much worse is it if everybody dies in poverty? Well, infinitely worse. But not because it's everybody, but because it's one after another, after another, after another. I mean, I think extinction is a story. And some people are focusing on it as if it was somehow worse than, you know, if 7 billion people died and we didn't continue, if that was, you know, how much worse than 5 billion people? six billion dying is that well it doesn't bear contemplation things are bad enough 
So in going through this, in coming to terms with overshoot, resource depletion, uh, climate breakdown, and so forth, have you yourself found uh, a place beyond mere acceptance, what Paul Trafurka calls finding the gift? Um, you know, and what, what's opened up for you positively by allowing yourself to, um, in his language, go through the post-doom, the post-doom doorway? I think it helps me to focus on the present. Um, all that stuff in previous decades about trying to end poverty was focused on uh, building a better world in the future. And we have to do it now. Uh, I have to be more content with every day, um, not think 20, 30 years ahead. I'm only thinking one or two years ahead at the moment. Yes. Um, I don't know if that's uh, a good thing, uh, but it will uh, make an uncertain future easier to manage as it unfolds. Um, I'm less embedded because I haven't had a pension for a long time, but I imagine a lot of people with pensions are going to be very disappointed. Uh, but in that sense of planning for the future, I'm not doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, Connie and I are both very mission-driven. We're not preparing for retirement or anything of the sort. We're trying to make as big a difference as we can in this life. Fortunately, we're blessed with a lot of people who've opened up their surplus housing and allowed us to stay for some weeks or occasionally some months that allows us to do the work that we do without having to pay for a mortgage and uh, that sort of thing. I think there's lots and lots of gaps in the economy like that unused resources that could be put to better use if we only bothered to cooperate. Yes. Yes. Well, and again, that's part of the, the part of the social technology of how mm -hmm. do we communicate our desires and wishes and wants? How do we communicate disappointment without it triggering the other person? How do we move through conflict and, and come mm -hmm. to agreements and those sort of social community oriented personal skills are, I think, uh, you know, vitally important to uh, pick them out of the closet if you haven't uh, worked with that for a while and uh, dust it off. Well, Matthew, uh, last question has to do with remaining opportunities. Um, what's your take on what is beyond our control and where we can still make a difference individually and collectively? In other, words, in, in other words, what's, what's your sense of what's no longer possible and what still is possible? Well, I, I've got a soft place in my heart for anarchists. And their idea that um, we prefigure the new society by building our own communities and eventually the space will open up, the network will spread and uh, we can have an anarchist society. I don't think we're able to think on those timescales anymore. Um, and the crisis has led me towards, with Jem, thinking about things in terms of existing political frameworks. I think it's very, very important to uh, challenge the narrative of capitalism uh, and uh, not wanting to use too many isms but to bring in some more social um, policies in order to reduce 
the suffering that's anticipated. And that should be possible. But at the same time, I'm not going to put all my eggs in that basket. What is possible is to build community on a much more local level. Um, it depends a lot on the other people as well, though. Uh, it's also possible to find those other people and go and be with them. Um, that would be my preferred approach at the moment because I don't have time to convert a village. And it's possible to live every day as if it was the last. No time frame is too soon when it comes to taking action. And we have to have some idea of a time frame. Exactly. In order to think or structure what we do. Exactly. It makes a difference if it's tomorrow or 10 years. So any final things you'd like to say in, uh, in wrapping up this conversation? Uh, well, I've been thinking recently about millenarianism. <laughs> say more. Uh, I, I was I, corresponding with uh, somebody on behalf of Jem who said, well, deep adaptation seems a bit millenarian to me. Uh, so I thought about that. I gave it due consideration. And yes, there's something in it. Um, especially for those of us who have this pain about the lack of social justice in the world. It's very easy to want the end of the existing order. And uh, the climate crisis gives us a reason why the existing order might end. Although, as I said before, it also might not. Um, so I think we should be cautious about uh, picking up these millenarian stories and frames and assuming that everything is going to change because we might just be disappointed to find that things are not going to change in that way. Or if they do change, it's just the new system on the current system on steroids. Yeah. But John Michael Greer makes that point often is that there are always believers uh, of various stripe in contracting, collapsing civilizations that believe if, you know, that any change is a good change uh, mm -hmm. and they're usually mistaken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I worked out when it comes to system dynamics that uh, changes, good changes are gradual because a disruption is chaotic. It's always bad. So Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation and uh, blessings on your currency work and your continued work with, uh, with Jem and other things you do in the world. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.